This is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. We are honored to have in our presence Dr. Alan Sager, who is a government and political science and constitutional law professor at the University of Texas here in Austin. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Uh, You know, I was looking at your bio, and I was trying to narrow down what I was going to say about you, and the pages just went on and on and on. So briefly, I'm going to share a couple facts. You got your law degree from the University of Michigan. Right. Your... Ph.D. in political science from Northwestern, right? And your bachelor of science in chemical engineering, of all things, uh, from Tufts University. Correct. So you're well educated, and you also own over 50 Supercuts franchises in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Correct. You were up to about 62 now. 62. Very impressive. Very impressive. Well, thank you, sir, for being on the show. I appreciate it. There's a lot to talk about, um, especially when it comes to college campuses and free speech. But before we do that, I want to share with our audience a little bit about your background, where you came from, where you grew up. And so if you don't mind, where did you grow up and where were you raised? Uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago and my family moved to the suburbs in the 50s in the great exodus. Mm the exurbs stayed there till I was 18 then I went to Massachusetts to Tufts and then to Michigan to law school and then back to Chicago for a PhD after I practiced law for a year and didn't quite like it <laughs> and uh, then I came down here to teach I taught here the first time from 69 to 74 which was very interesting times oh I bet then I won a fellowship worked at the office of the Chief Justice of the United States for a year and after another year working for the Federal Judicial Center, I decided I would like to go into business and not come back to teaching. So I resigned my position. I went to work for a company in California uh, that did seminars and um, had very high-powered people around there. Uh, I went to work for the president who had been the CEO of Coca-Cola California, mm-hmm. the national vice president of planning for Coke, and had been a major marketing professor at Harvard. He was going to teach me business. And after a few years there, a lot of the people kind of went into another kind of business, and uh, some went into the, poli- the consulting business. Right. And they went into the franchise consulting business, and uh, one of the franchises they set up was Supercuts. <laughs> and a lot of us decided we were going to get into supercuts, and I came back here in 81, and we thought we were going to open three stores, and now we're up to 64. And after kind of two, uh, losing two runoffs for election and Republican primaries, I uh, got a job working, uh, doing one course a semester at the University of Texas, and I've been doing that for 27 years. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. I, I'm curious to know, chemical engineering, what did you think you wanted to do at that point when you pursued oh, I, that I was going to go to, in my dad's business. Okay. And I was going to go to law school uh, and work in his business. He had a chemical sales business, and he sold it my second year of law school, and I had to become a lawyer. <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to get a law degree. I didn't want to be a lawyer. Right. So I got a job working with... Uh, a law firm that represented at that time the largest retailer in the world, Sears Roebuck. Okay. Which is pretty interesting, but I just didn't like it, so I went to graduate school instead. And, and got a PhD in political science? Political science, yeah. Okay. At, at that point, did you know you wanted to go into teaching? Yes. Okay. I've been interested in politics for a long time. Uh, 
I worked in my first political campaign for a guy who got out of the Navy who ran for Congress in 1962. His name was Don Rumsfeld. I've heard of him. <laughs> and uh, Caught the political bug then or had you already had it? I had it. When I was small, I wanted Eisenhower to be president. I didn't know that if he had run when I was small, like eight years old, he would have run as a Democrat. Ah. So by the time I understood uh, what it was to run for president, he was now a Republican, which is good. Gotcha, gotcha. So I, I'm always curious when we're talking to guests, um, some people get motivated at a different age when it comes to politics. Do you remember a trigger? Was it your parents? Was it something happening in society at the time? We talked politics a lot. Uh, you know, my parents actually had different points of view. Uh, we always say my mother was a communist in the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> he went to the University of Chicago. My dad was a businessman, so he was a free marketer. Right. And, you know, my mother eventually changed. In 1980, when Reagan was running, we were living in San, my wife and I were living in San Francisco, and she called me up and said, you got to go vote for Reagan. This is the first time she ever encouraged me to vote for anybody for president, let alone a Republican. Right. And I said to her, I said, Mom, I was registered, I said, Mom, I don't need to vote for Reagan. I've been watching the returns, and he's going to win. She said, don't you believe that? You go out and vote for Reagan. <laughs> did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I sure did. Well, you know, I, I think we can both point to plenty of examples where, where votes do matter. You, <laughs> you got to go out and vote and show up yep. and, and participate. So you mentioned, and I, I wasn't aware of this, but you mentioned a second ago that you ran for office at one, po what, one point. What did you run for? I ran for county commissioner here in 86. I uh, got in a runoff in the Republican primary and lost it. Uh, I ran second. Then in 90, I ran for state rep, and I was leading and going in the runoff, and I lost the runoff there, too. Mm. You then became, at some point, the chair of the Travis County Republican Party. So what motivated you to take on that position? I wanted to do something. You know, and I, this, this was a really good time in Travis County. Bush was going to be president, or looked like he was going to be president. People were very interested, and, you know, we had some large number of local offices by the time in the first two years of the Bush administration. You know, I'm sorry, I think I misheard you say something. I thought you said it was a good time to be a Republican in Travis County. Did you say that? I did. Ago? Okay. I thought I, I thought I heard that, but I wasn't sure. I wanted to make, make Bush, sure. Bush carried, Bush had a plurality in Travis County. The only other Republican who had ever carried Travis County uh, since the Civil War was Reagan in his 86th re-election. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So, uh... So how long did you serve as chair of the Republican From Party? From 2000 to 2008. Okay. Did you feel like you made progress in that time? We did make some progress, and it got set back a little bit w w with the uh, beginning about the 2004 election. And then right. I was going to not stay, but the Obama election then really uh, pushed it the other way. Part of it, part of it was uh, people moving here from liberal states with high taxes who still voted liberal. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I, I have that conversation with a lot of people. You know, people are, are moving to Texas from California in droves for a better tax climate, better business climate, yet they continue voting the same way they voted in California. Yes. Doesn't make any sense. Does no, it? it doesn't. But, well, I guess that just means we need to get out there and convince more people of, of the reasons why Texas is the way Texas is. Yep. All right. So I also noticed looking at your bio that you are active in the Republican Jewish Coalition. Right. Tell us about that. Republican Jewish Coalition is a obviously organization of Jewish Republicans. I'm on the national board. 
Uh, main purpose is security issues in Israel. It has its origins with a group of people, and my dad has a little bit to do with them, or, uh, Jewish advisors around Richard Nixon. <laughs> and it soon morphed into what was called the National Jewish Coalition. And then right around the time of the election of George H.W., we changed our name to Republican Jewish Coalition. We have 40,000 members across the country. And the board has some very good people. A number of our members have been uh, finance chairs of the RNC, ambassadors, and uh, leaders in a large number of presidential campaigns. Right. Um, so, so President Trump has been in office for less than a year. How do you feel he is doing on Israel? I think he's doing great. Good. Netanyahu's happy. I'm happy. If uh, Netanyahu's happy, we should all be happy, right? He's done what he said he would do. He's taking uh, down the Iran deal. Uh, many people don't realize that the Iran deal got done because of Senator Corker and the amendment that allowed uh, the Iran deal to get done in exactly the opposite way you do treaties. Normally treaties, two-thirds vote to have the treaty. Right. With the Corker Amendment, it was two-thirds not to have the treaty. And that would have, the Iran deal would not have passed on a two-thirds positive vote as any treaty. Of course, sure. they tried not to call it a treaty. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I feel like I was the only one appalled at the time when Obama was entering into the, the Iran deal that they shipped a plane load of cash, cash on pallets to Iran as part of the deal. Yep. That's absurd. Why would we do that? I'm not Obama, so I don't know. <laughs> well, the I, things are, you know, if you're around politics long enough, at one level, you, you, the, the next weird thing that happens you can't imagine, but you know is a weird thing is likely to happen. Right. Well, so you feel like we're on a better path as a nation so far. Overall, are you pleased with Trump? Yes. Okay. Uh, so before we got started, there are a lot of items in the news these days that are dealing with college campuses. Um, and it, it's something that I think everybody needs to pay attention to. Obviously, we had a, a horrific incident in Charlottesville, Virginia, regarding a, a Confederate monument. And I want to ask you about that. Uh, before we delve into some of these other issues, because the reaction across the nation to that incident was, well, we need to tear down every Confederate monument uh, in the country, and then that led to tearing down other monuments of people who liberals found defensive. And at the University of Texas, several Confederate monuments were taken down in the dark of night, uh, which personally I don't, I, don't, I don't view that as a good process. So, what is your reaction to that, and how should we handle this monument issue? Well, first of all, I think you're opening an entire can of worms when you go to the monument issue. Because does this mean we take down every monument related to Democrats since their origin of the Democratic Party is the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War? Sure. That was the Democrat Army, right? Just read Denise D'Souza. No, I don't think nobody denies it. Right. It used to be, I think that there are a lot of things that you may not have liked around, but you use that as an opportunity to learn something. I walked through that six-pack area on the South Mall. I didn't even know most of those monuments were there. That's right. So, so I, I'm kind of curious as to who walks by and gets very upset. 
<laughs> about that. But I'm sorry that they do. And perhaps what the university needs is a process that if you're upset with the monument, somebody can talk to you about what is there, how it got there, what it tells us, and what we have to learn from having it there. Sure. As opposed to taking it down. So I'm not, I'm not a big take down monuments. You, you end up with what you see the Taliban and ISIS did. They used that to destroy the history. That's right. I think there needs to be other, other ways of managing this. You know, I, I think we see more and more these days um, a oversensitivity on, on the part of the left, especially college students, that uh, any, anything that offends them should be taken out of their eyesight, out of, out of their lives, right? And I think that's a bad way to live, and it's a dangerous way to live. And, and I think that's where the term snowflake has originated, right? Um, but if we're teaching kids that, hey, if something offends you or upsets you, we'll just remove it. Is that a good lesson to be teaching kids? Well, my father had two sayings. One was, of course, well, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right. All hurt. I mean, he had another one kind of the side of the, the herd of the word is worse than the herd of the sword. But that was kind of secondary. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm not in favor of that. That's not, that's not how life is. And th this is uh, attempts to control, and control your environment in a way that's probably not helpful to you. Right. The real world is not that way. real world is not that way. Uh, and there are people out there who want to kill you and are laughing at you doing that. That's right. Well, and, and so, yeah, I... I, I do believe that there's harm being done psychologically to students when we, when we teach them or allow them to believe that they shouldn't be offended by anything because that's just not the real world. But also, going back to the monument issue, I think it's dangerous, and there's maybe a more dangerous objective at play here, and that is a concerted effort by the left to destroy culture and history that they disagree with. And that's something I think we need to be cognizant of. Yeah, well, that, that where that comes in is they want to make the argument that the whole country is immoral, illegal because of our history of slavery. And therefore, the, the, there's actually no way uh, you can make up for that. And that's this, the whole issue of identity politics is what's going on. Right. That you, you, know, you are your gender or you are your race, uh, and that's all you are. We had a very heated discussion in my class about a website because Planned Parenthood got them to put a badge on the website as to which indicated your position on abortion. Oh, wow. And I said to the kids, I said, okay, what does this mean? And they thought, they thought about it for a while. And they kind of, they said, I said, well, here's what I think it says. I think it says, the most important thing about you is your position on abortion. True. That's what they want. And they said, well, it's not that big. You know, it's, it's got, and it's got your height there, too. I said, your height's on every other website, too. You know, this is all on other. What is it that stands out here? Right. That you're, that's who your identity is. Now, is that who your identity is? Of course not. Right. They want you to think that's who your identity is. That's right. And if you become your identity, then anybody who disagrees with you is negating who you are. That, 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 is, that is a... Um, recipe for conflict right and part of the part of the difference 
I think between conservative and liberal sometimes is we have opinions. Liberals, they are their opinion. Hmm. See, if I disagree with your opinion, you have, okay, you think it's up, I think it's down. All right, we both have an opinion. Right. But if your life is up, and I say it's really not up, then I'm, I've now really invalidated your life. <laughs> right. Right? Because that's sure. all it's about. Yeah. Right? You know, I'd love to hear more about your civil liberties class because obviously there's a big issue on campuses these days about free speech. And, you know, for years I've been hearing about speech codes on college campuses and things you can or can't do. And as we sit here recording this episode, Halloween is just around the corner. And so my uh, intern, who is currently a, a, a student at UT, and I believe a student of yours, or was at one time, sent me this list of items <laughs> that was sent to the entire Greek community uh, explaining to them what's acceptable as a Halloween costume and what's not acceptable as a Halloween costume. And, and just as a general idea of what they should consider, it says you should really consider when you're thinking of a theme for a party, whether you're making fun of a particular people, culture, campus group, gender, income status, life situation, basically anything, anybody. Uh, and what's the joke? If someone laughed at the costume, what are they laughing at? And is someone going to get their feelings hurt? So there's a list here of prohibited costume themes and acceptable costume themes. So apparently, anytime you paint or tint your skin in an attempt to be a different skin tone, that's offensive and shouldn't be done. So can't dress up as a vampire, I suppose. No cowboys and Indians, can't do that. Uh, no fiesta theme, uh, no Hawaiian theme, no around the world theme. But here is what is acceptable, and this is gonna make for a great Halloween party. You can have an alphabet theme and dress up as your favorite letter. Sounds exciting, right? You can dress up as what you want to be when you grow up. That's acceptable. I thought we did that in third grade, not college. Anyway, or you could dress up as a, I, I kid you not, this is on the list. You can dress up as a Rubik's Cube or memory match game. These are some exciting Halloween parties. But that's the state of affairs on college campuses these days. And that's sad. I, I, I don't get it. Because you could also walk around campus dressed up as a woman and claim you're a woman. Very true. So what, what's the difference? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, I guess it's what the left says is acceptable and what is not acceptable. That's what it comes down to. So, and, and you know, I, I use that as an example and, and I laugh at it, but it's indicative of, of a more serious problem. And as I mentioned to you, we had a couple students in here last week, one person who's the chair of the Young Conservatives of Texas for the state, and she was a student at UT, and she shared a story about YCT doing a bake sale on campus last fall, and the intention of the bake sale was to explain their position and their opposition to affirmative action. Yeah, and it drew a serious protest, and I'd love for you to watch this video, and then I want to get your reaction to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can, hey, 
So, um, you know, where to begin on that clip, right? Uh, given the power of social media, within half an hour, 45 minutes, hundreds of protesters showed up and got in their face, shouted epithets at them, called them racist, shut down the event. Luckily, there was no physical violence that I am aware of. Uh, but that comes close to the legal definition of assault based on what I saw. Should that be happening on campuses? Well, of course not. For the most part, I'm a free speech absolutist. Uh, you don't shut down spe free speech, you answer it with more speech. Uh, obviously, I, wouldn't, I think this is not a good thing to happen because the YCT didn't get a chance to actually respond, as you noticed. Right. Look, I teach about civil liberties, and I, people can say what they want in my class. Right. And I want them to get a, a, a sense of a range of both legal doctrine and then see things in, in, in popular stuff. I mean, they have to watch movies in my class. And the final movie is Blazing Saddles, <laughs> which, where everybody gets insulted. That's right, yeah. And it's a movie that M Mel Brooks says is about racial justice. Right. You know, can this be made today, and is this a way of approaching it, telling a story in this way that insults everyone? Do you think Blazing Saddles could be made today? Probably not. Although um, Rolling Stone says it's one of the ten best comedies ever made. Bob Hope says time plus tragedy equals comedy. <laughs> uh, so. so Dr. Sager, my concern with what we saw uh, on the video with the protest of the YCT bake sale is, is twofold. One, I think we've gotten to a point, especially today with the existence of Antifa and these violent groups, that the left has decided that they can shut down free speech by showing up and being loud and ugly and mean and violent. Um, and the flip side of that is I asked the YCT student the other day, you planning another bake sale? Would you be shocked to, to hear that she said no? No. No, I'm not. Right. And I've talked to some of my students, and they do have it, even the, conserv the conservative ones, have a tendency not to want to rock the boat. I feel like the university needs to set in, step in here and say, look, you're welcome to counter-protest. You just can't shut down their statement because that's what happened here. Yeah, I, I believe this video goes on for half an hour, 45 minutes, and nowhere in any of it, and I've watched the entire thing, did I see a campus police officer. Yep. Should they not be there to protect the students at some point who are exercising their right to free speech? Well, not only are the students exercising their right, the students have been given the power by the university to actually hold that space to make a statement. Right. And so interestingly, in this case, uh, the university came out and criticized YCT 
for holding the bake sale and basically said you shouldn't have done this. They did not criticize the mob that gathered to shut it down. Is that the right message? I'm not the university. But I, I don't think that is the, is the message that, the, that really furthers dialogue. Right. What would further dialogue was actually to have a dialogue up here about what YC, the point YCT was trying to make and have some of the protesters make their case as to why this is hurtful, wrong, wrong legally, wrong factually, right. misrepresents what affirmative action is about, and not try to strong arm, strong arm them. As you said, the, the, uh, the solution to speech you don't like is more speech, more speech. not violence and intimidation. No so if you want to get in a lecture hall and, and debate the issue, then let's debate the issue. Let's be happy to debate the issue. Right. So a corollary of this that, I, that I've seen in the past year or so that's equally disturbing is conservative commentators, whether it be Ann Coulter or Ben Shapiro, trying to speak on a college campus and the left, the violent left, these neo-communists, Antifa, showing up in such large numbers that they're keeping these speakers from coming on campus. The universities in many cases are saying, sorry, you're not welcome because we don't want to have to spend half a million dollars to secure the area. Or if they are allowed to show up and speak, who's going to come watch this if you've got to walk through a mob to get there? And so I want, I want to show you one more video clip, and it's of Ben Shapiro speaking at the University of California at Berkeley and, and the mob that gathered out there. Thanks to Antifa and the supposed anti-fascist brigade for exposing what the radical left truly is. All of America is watching because you guys are so stupid. As far as the idea that, you know, I'm a white supremacist in service to Trump-Pence, a couple problems there. One, as far as the service to Trump-Pence, um, again, I didn't vote for Trump or Hillary. I didn't vote for either of them, actually. So this idea that I am somehow a servant of Trump is absurd and requires you to be functionally illiterate. As far as the idea I'm a white supremacist, you see the thing on the top of my head, right? This funny hat. It's called a yarmulke. Hey, white supremacists aren't that fond of it, which is why I was, according to the Anti-Defamation League, the number one recipient of white supremacist anti-Semitism on the Internet among journalists in 2016. But no, I'm a white supremacist now. Because this is the way the left works, right? If you don't agree with them, everyone's a white supremacist. You're a Nazi. Nazis should be punched. And therefore, it's totally fine to stand outside and try to shut down events if you can get away with it. The reason that I am here is because fascism does not own this university. Because there are students who do want to hear differing views who don't want to be told that they can only hear one view, who don't believe that the First Amendment should die under the jackboots and Birkenstocks of a bunch of anarchist, communist pieces of garbage. Thoughts on that one? One of the, one of the prob, you know, this issue of money is a very interesting issue. By the way, I want, I'm going to talk about this here. There's another side to it, okay. is what the left does. I'll take the, the one side. They do try to get government organizations to spend money. The taxpayers are paying 
for their antics right of california a lot there's a lot there's a lot of challenges by the left of various things like say a, a cross somewhere where the city gives in because they don't have the money sure. to defend it right so money plays a role I, I think because the city ought to say, ought to say, look, you're going to cause us to have to spend a lot of extra money. You need to pay for half of it. To the left? To, the to left. these groups that are showing up? The group, yeah. Okay. Somebody's got to pay for it. In this case, not the speaker should pay for it, but the other people should pay for it. Although, although you know, these speakers do, over time, have had to pay. That's right. To pay, themselves, pay, pay by themselves for extra security because other people are are threatening them. Right. As we said, it's an attempt to shut down a conservative message and free speech on college campuses. And of all places where we should have free speech, it should be college campuses. And and looking at this crowd, I mean, I wonder how many of these people were actually students at the University of California at Berkeley. Well, you know, there are a lot of non-students coming on the campuses, and there's no way to stop that. In addition to that, I was struck by the fact that he makes an important point that a lot of what's said is false. Right. My teaching is trying to help my students be more critical of what they hear. It's the old physics professor who said 50% of what I teach you prove false, and I don't know which 50%. Mm-hmm. Ergo, you need to be thinking carefully about anything I tell you. Right. And he makes that point brilliantly. I, I knew he didn't support Trump. Sure. Uh, obviously, it's unlikely for him to be uh, a Nazi. Highly uh, unlikely. Highly I would unlikely. Say so. Right. And it's unfortunate that what a lot of this does is it lets words get bastardized. Mm-hmm. The word Holocaust is bastardized. The word hate is bastardized. I could go through a whole range of words. Right. Racist is another good example. Race. Uh, right. And the pro- of course, what that reflects is racist used to be somebody who was a segregationist or would kill African Americans, right? Right. Now it's someone who doesn't want to let somebody of race do something they may want to do. A little overkill. I'd say so. In, in Ben Shapiro's case, for a mob to be calling him a racist uh, is nonsense, first of all. But that seems to be the strategy of the left. If they don't like your message, call you names and try to shut you down and make you not speak. That is. I mean, they did that to Charles Murray. Sure. No, was it was it Middlebury? Right. And Middlebury, and they don't they don't know who Charles Murray is. Right. Charles Murray, the social scientist who social has written on a number of topics. Yeah, who's wrote a piece about taking back big government for to the people. Right. And I'm sure they'd agree with most of what he had to say in that book if they listen. So we're we're seeing these scenes play out across the country on campuses in an increasing number. And, and, and the level of violence is increasing. Texas A&M two months ago canceled a speech by a controversial speaker citing security cost. So the left succeeded in threatening violence and shutting down free speech. So let me ask you two questions. One, is that a violation of that person's right to free speech? Well, if you're invited to a campus, uh, if you have no other right to be there except by invitation, then it's not a violation of your free speech rights. There may be some right here for students to hear novel ideas. Sure. Ideas different from the norm on the campus. I don't think it's quite fully developed yet. Sure. So that, that, that brings me to a point. 
university campuses should be a place, as we talked about, where there's a free flow and exchange of ideas so that students can grow uh, in their thinking, in their critical thinking skills. Yet what we're seeing is the left figuring out that they can shut down speech and shut down speech on campus, whether it's by a group on campus or an outside speaker who's been invited to come in. And I think universities need to react in one of two different ways. As in the case of the University of Berkeley, if these are people coming in from off campus to create a mob situation and shut down free speech, they should be arrested and taken off of campus. If they're students whose objective is to shut down free speech, they should be suspended as a first offense and expelled as a second offense. And let's restore free speech on college campuses. I think those are uh, you know, sensible ways that's causing consequences. The problem is you also want to allow some amount of protest. Sure. Now, I remember when I first taught here, I used to show the Mario Sa movie of Mario Salvio and the free speech movement, which was a little bit away from where I was in law school. In law school, I protested him coming to Michigan Law School, and I actually made all the Michigan papers because it said rabble rouser go home, and I had misspelled rabble rouser. <laughs> details, <laughs> details, details, details. But, uh, but again, those protests were not particularly violent at that point. Right. In fact, they weren't, if I, if I recall. There were some sit-ins and stuff, but was not, it, didn't, it didn't rise to the same level we see here. Any, anything we think should be done, one is going to cost money, somebody money. Well, I agree with you. The right to protest is an equally valid right, right. as the right to actually speak. The thing, I have to say one thing about the Texas video. The University of Texas is a pretty open place, as best I could tell. That particular thing that happened last year was unfortunate. It isn't particularly normal on this campus. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's... I get to say what I want to say. Uh, I could see some things in other, camp, in other places where I may not be able to do, speak or lead classes the way I, I do them. Right. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful to be, to be here. Sure. Uh, yeah, and by no means do I in, in mean to single out the University of Texas. It just happens to be in our backyard. No, that's I mean, backyard. that happens to be that particular incident, and that was an, unfor an unfortunate, inci unfortunate incident. Right in the sense that there was no real discussion of the issue. Sure. So, Dr. Sager, I want to shift gears on you slightly and talk about professors on college campuses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I interviewed the, the chairwoman of YCT and the president of the College Republicans, I asked them both as students, recent students and a current student, out of over 3,000 professors, how many conservative professors have you run across? And they both had the same answer. And the answer was two to three out of over 3,000. So I want to ask you a very basic question. Why are university campuses almost completely controlled by liberal professors? It's because that's who are the people going to graduate school. Mm. You know, uh, if you're fiscally oriented, you may be probably going to business school, right? Right. Teaching is a noble profession, and people went in, uh, uh, you know, used to go to it as a noble profession to give back. 
uh, it cha it's changed. It's, it's a profession designed to not teach, but almost at the level of indoctrinate. Absolutely. You can see what's happening in journalism as well. Don't people get me started. People aren't going into journalism to report objectively the news. They're going into journalism to make their point of view known to a larger public. Right. Two, th there are more than that, by the way. <laughs> okay. I'll take we your word for it. We have a of 70, and I, 77, we think there's at least seven conservatives in our department. Okay. Um, uh, and one of the kids was telling me today, the way you can tell a conservative is if you can't tell the person's point of view, they're a conservative. Except for me. Wow. Or, right. I, mean, I let them know who I am because I don't, I don't care. But you encourage debate. This, by the way, this will take us off on a little tangent, but I'll tell you. I actually had a discussion with my students. I, I have office hours at the Cactus, and eight or nine students come. We have beer. It's very famous office hours, yeah. by the way. Um, and I asked them basically about how they're tested. They know they have they have teachers, and they have teachers who have points of view. And I said, well, do any of them test you in a way that at least you can present another point of view? And they uniformly said no, mm. because my exams are. You got to argue both whatever point. If you can't argue both points of view, you're not going to do well. Okay. Right. It doesn't matter what I think, and they know that, uh, and they feel very comforted by that. But that's not common, particularly in the social sciences. I mean, in Spanish, Spanish is you know what's the word mean, and can you translate this? Right. Particularly in the social sciences, they you know they 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 tell me things are presented as if there's only one point of view, and. There, I'm not sure what you can do about that. I mean, what I try to do about it is just make sure they know as we go through things that relate to us that have social science basis right. that a lot of it's not replicable. A lot of stuff that's presented to the court is false. So is there a way for the administration to require professors? No. No. There's no way to do it. Okay. No. Um, the only ways are for parents to vote with their pocketbook and for students to be strong enough to demand that some of the stuff stop. Okay. I've, I've heard kids tell me in classes that have nothing to do with government, sociology, psychology. There's a lot of politics. But it's like somebody in advanced analytic chemistry spending half the time talking about Trump. Right. Hard to work that into the... Uh, subject matter, I would think. And there's nobody to stop that. And then the students have to, you know, but they, they tell me they have, they have to put up with it. What are they mm -hmm. going to do? Because they got to take it advance out of the chemistry. And now I'm not talking, I'm just using that example. Sure, I've never absolutely. Heard, I've never heard a word about it. <laughs> that about, particular about, class. That, that particular class. Uh, well, I, I can't help but think that something should be done and can be done at some level. And you, you, you keep going back to the money. So let's talk about the money. Should the Board of Regents require college campuses to hire more conservative professors. I mean, all of these universities like to talk about diversity, and they're all in favor of affirmative action. So how about some affirmative action? How about some diversity when it comes to having more conservative professors? And let me follow that up real quick. Let's take it one step beyond the Board of Regents. All of these public universities in the state of Texas are funded by the Texas legislature. At what point should the Texas legislature say to these universities, we are funding you, 
we want you to have more conservative professors on campus so that students are getting both sides of the issues and not simply being indoctrinated by the left. Technically, they have the right to do that. You know, they're paying for it. Right. On the other hand, is there such a supply of professors there? I mean, even in the area of affirmative action of trying to hire more black professors, part of the problem is there, the supply isn't there and we're competing. If there is somebody who's really good in their field, we may be competing with Harvard and Yale. Right. So there's that, that aspect of supply. And what do, you, what do you mean by hire? I mean, should we hire somebody who's not very good just because they're a conservative? No. So maybe, I don't know, maybe there's another way to do it. You come onto campus, you have a variety of courses you have to take about gender and ethics and openness and this and that. Maybe part of the orientation for a new faculty is we want you to be open. We, we want you to be fair. We don't want you... We want you to make all points of view at, be at home in your class if it's a class where there are points of view. And we want you to be open to the fact that your point of view, even of research, may be erroneous. Right. No university is going to be able to go out and get 40% of their faculty professors. They're just the supply, the supply isn't there. Sure. But they can try to present themselves as universities used to be places for learning, for arguing, right. for carefully studying your own point of view. I, when I came down, I, I was a kind of moderate northern Republican. I, was, and I came down here and I'm kind of on the far left. With a bunch of young professors. And so I was considered quite liberal for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I found a polling and consulting business, you may know my partner, right. but I still try to be open about it. I remember one day the kids wanted to go to a, uh, to a uh, demonstration, want to leave class early, want to go to a demonstration. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'll, no, you can I'll let you leave class early if you can demonstrate to me why you'll learn more at the demonstration than you're going to learn by class. <laughs> <laughs> they That's stayed. Great. Yeah. They stayed. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would have gone too if I didn't have class too, but I said, no, we got class. This right. is important. I'm, I'm not, not. So, I think it'd be easier to just concentrate on trying to get those who are there more open. And students have got to be a little more willing to say, I got graded on my politics, not the quality of my work. But who are they going to complain to? Well, you've got a bunch of offices about civil rights and civic engagement. Hmm. Supposed, to be, supposed to be quiet, supposed to be confidential. Well, Dr. Sager, I'm, I appreciate you coming on the episode today, and, and the reason I wanted to have you on this show is because I'm increasingly concerned that free speech is under attack across the country uh, and that something needs to be done about it. And as a taxpayer in the state of Texas, I am concerned that we're paying for these universities and sending our kids off to be indoctrinated by the left, and then they're coming out and becoming the leaders of the state and the voters who control the state, and that's concerning to me, and, and it's an issue that I'm going to continue to pay close attention to. Yes, uh, I think I definitely think it's worth paying close attention to, and there's a there's a variety of problems there. See, I think more of those kids agree with you than you realize, right? But they don't tie it together the way you do. And I'll, I'll get there was you see the recent study where they said they had this tax plan that was Bernie's. 
and the kids loved it. Yes, but it was, it was great really, video. But it was Trump's? Right. Yes. That's what Ben Shapiro was talking about. Sure. Is it better educating them about what they really think, what they think right. and who it's related to? That's right. I, I, w- I would think if it's all, you know, if, uh, if you took a set of tweets and said they were from X, people would be less upset with them than if you, you said it was from Trump. And, and that's unfortunate. And, and we'll have to tack that video onto the end of this episode because it's very instructive, you know, when someone was able to say, this is the tax plan of Bernie Sanders, and the students thought it was a great idea, but lo and behold, it was President Trump's idea. And then they thought so, it was terrible, right? Absolutely amazing. They would have thought it was horrible without even listening. So anyway, uh, Dr. Sager, I appreciate you coming on okay. the episode. And as you well know, it is our tradition to end each episode uh, with a quote of choice of our guest. And, and I know you have brought something for us, uh, so we'd love to hear it. Ah, so one of my favorites because we talk about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, is Madison in Federalist 51, which goes, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor external controls on government would be necessary. That's a good one. And the other one is from George Orwell, who said, freedom is the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. I sometimes think that the price of liberty is not so much eternal vigilance as eternal dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Sager, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to go to iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube and subscribe. Thanks for listening. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. If you like what you heard, please visit TreyBlocker.com for more episodes and a chance to donate and support the show. Thank you for listening.